Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspired Churches podcast. We're a church in Union City that loves Jesus. Our hope is that you'd be inspired to grow in God's Word as reflected in loving Christ more and more every day. So wherever you are, be a light. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspiredchurches.com. Today, we are actually going to uh, begin our conclusion, which kind of sounds opposite. But today, it, we're going we're gonna to begin a two-week conclusion to the sermon series that we've been in for the last seven weeks that we've entitled Origins. Um, but don't worry, like I'm really excited because a mini series is coming that's going to follow this that I think you're going to want to invite. If you have a friend or a family member that is like a seeker, maybe they're atheists, maybe they're agnostic, maybe they're uncertain, we're really going to do something different. And uh, I just want to encourage you. Even, I want you to find the person who's probably the, the person you just don't like to argue with. Like bring them, bring somebody with questions and also, even for you, if you have questions in your heart, um, I am excited for that. I don't want to go too fast towards that, but I'm saying I'm, in, I'm anticipating that. But today, we're actually going to start a, a two-part, kind of a, a, a two-parter that is going to conclude our origin series. And this two-parter is actually going to deal with what theology kind of identifies as the fall, so as you know, we've been walking through the creation narrative, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And for this week and next week, we are going to be in Genesis 3, and we are going to talk about the fall, which is why I have this shirt on today. Um, for those of you that have been around for any uh, period of time at Inspired Church, you know that I like to kind of say, you know, fasten your seatbelts, you know, like when you're on an airplane and the seatbelt light comes on, like we're going to say something that's challenging or correcting or rebuking. And today we're going to talk about sin. And so I thought I would wear this shirt today and I had to shout out Aira and Veronica Lopez for getting this shirt for me. Um, I appreciate this. And, uh, and so uh, I wanted to wear it like the last month because you gave it to me for my birthday. I was like, man, I'm going to wait until we talk about the fall. Um, that's when I'm going to wear the fasten your seatbelt shirt. And so, um, and so we are going to do that today. And so we're going to split Genesis uh, in two. Today we're going to kind of work through Genesis, one, Genesis 3, 1 through 9. And next week we'll work through, next Sunday we'll finish the Origins series by finishing the rest of chapter 3. And that will kind of put a bow on the, the kind of creation narrative. Have you ever wondered... What is wrong with this world? Like, how could something be so beautiful and yet so terrible? Or maybe some of you are like, forget this. What's wrong with my world? Uh, maybe it's not just the world that you wondered at, but have you ever, what's wrong with me? Right? I mean, if we're all honest, uh, there's nobody in this room that knows you better than you. Nobody knows the thoughts that you wrestle with. No one knows with the actions and activities, the brokenness and dysfunction. Nobody knows it better than you do. Maybe you've thought, what's wrong with this world? Or maybe you are here and you've been asked, what's wrong with me? 
And, and, and I don't think it, it, it's a mystery. I don't think, I don't think uh, uh, um, the, world, the, the, the world, it's not a hard thing whether you're a believer or not, an agnostic, an atheist, a Christian, or any other religion. Like, it's not hard to open your eyes and see that something is not right. It's here in Genesis 3, I think, where the Bible attempts to provide an answer to what's wrong with the world. Genesis 3 has been called the saddest chapter in all of Scripture. It records really the, the birthplace of every human wickedness and sin. It, it describes the source of every kind of evil, every kind of suffering, every kind of sickness and pain. It, it's the explanation for even natural disasters and, and, and environmental decay. It's, it's the starting point of passed down generational trauma and brokenness. And it provides for us a reason for the presence of death. And though secular scholarship may try to downplay or deny evil. For the Christian, there's no guessing. There's no wondering. Genesis 3 tells the story of the most tragic day in human history. The day that paradise was lost and the day that everything that was so good uh, went so wrong. This is how the scriptures, this is how the Bible deals with the presence of suffering, evil, and pain. And so with that being said, I'm gonna pray. Would you pray for me as I pray for you as we prepare to dive into the text? Heavenly Father, even in this world of sin, we still see your goodness, especially in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so as we talk about a tragic event, we don't look at this event without hope. We look at it from hope, knowing that you've done something to deal with it. But nonetheless, we can't ignore it or deny it. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, illuminate the text so that everyone in this room, regardless of where they come from, regardless of their age, will be able to walk out of here with something from you today. We pray that your word wouldn't come back void. Let it accomplish everything that it's been sent out to do so that you would get all the honor, all the glory in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Before we get into uh, the, the larger portion of our text, I kind of want to go back a little bit. Y'all remember last week, and really the last two weeks, we've been dealing with Genesis chapter 2. I want to go back to Genesis 2, 16 and 17, just to kind of remind you of something that we read, but that we may have passed over because we were trying to emphasize something else. I want to go back to Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And I want you to remember after God had planted the garden of Eden and before God had created woman, do you remember what he told Adam? He told Adam this, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Now, if you're anything like me, the moment you tell me not to do something, I'm pretty much ready to do it. 
God continues, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Y'all see that? This, this garden prohibition provides the first human couple with a choice. And it's really a daily choice. Like they're gonna wake up every day and see this tree that God has said, do not partake of it. The, the first couple, th this prohibition provides them with a choice. Will they live as creatures totally dependent upon their creator or, or will they live for themselves? W will they remain creature or will they try and mimic creator? And I want you to think about it. All of God's commandments, all of his laws really come down to this. Trust. When you think about it, the question that the prohibition, the law of God asks of your life is, do you trust him? Do you believe that he knows best? Is his word sufficient? Is his word enough for you? And that, that's really the question of the text. So with that in mind, let's dive into Genesis 3. And let's read verses 1 through 9 together. Scripture reads like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. So please don't excuse Adam. If you want to know where Adam was, he was next to her. As a whole sermon in itself. Where are you at? And then he ate. Let's continue. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed designer fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths or coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You know what's really fascinating about that? That's a rhythm. Like there's an implication that at a certain time of day, God comes to meet with them. Continue. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And I know this is, this is an abrupt stop and we're gonna continue next week, but let, let's just stay right there. And really, I, I wanna deal with three elements from this, from this story, from this text. And we're gonna go with all S's. Gonna try to be creative like Pastor Roger. 
serpent, sin, and shame. So the, the three elements that we're going to touch on this morning, serpent, sin, and shame. Now, up until this point of the story, there has been nothing but beauty. There's been sonnet and song. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, there's been poetic parallelism, poetry, and romance. Up to this point, God had created a beautiful and beneficial world with nothing missing, nothing lacking, shalom. And he had placed humanity, the crown jewel of his creation, in the midst of this beautiful world to work it and keep it as a ministry, as those who would bear the image of God on the earth. But suddenly, abruptly in chapter 3, we are introduced to a chaos creature whose presence will disrupt the beauty and foreshadow the darkness ahead as he executes a plan to erode their trust in God. And so I want to I deal with the serpent. Two weeks ago, I had a wonderful time with a stranger who is now a friend who identifies himself as a secular humanist. He's an atheist who has adopted the theory of evolution as the best explanation for human origins. And as we kind of gathered together to talk about the existence of God and the credibility of Genesis, he stopped me and he asked me, you don't really believe in a talking snake, do you? I'm glad we got a giggle. Some of you are like, yeah, do we? <laughs> right, I mean, and it's one of those things where you just don't really think through it, right? It's like you're, and if you're born and raised in church like me in Sunday school, just, you're just taking it all as truth, right? right? I've been told this from the beginning, like, Little, you know, the little things that you put up on the foam and the little, they're like, that's, and then, but in this moment, you know, as a, I'm a pastor and, you know, I'm 40, I don't know, 41 years old, 42 maybe, I'm not sure. And like, you know, it's inside, like, wait, do I, do I, do I, is it, do I really believe in a talking snake? To which, of course, you know, on the inside, I'm struggling, but on the outside, I'm just, you know, it's possible. <laughs> So what do we do with this mysterious creature? Well, let me make some observations. It, it is possible that there was a snake-like creature walking on its hind legs, talking to Eve. Like, it's possible. It's possible. I mean, we're talking about God creating by a spoken word. And then you're like, well, wait a minute, this is why I bring in evolution. Well, you got all kinds of holes in your stuff as well. Like, it, it, it takes faith to believe that nothing turned into something. And the only way that they can explain it is let's just put billions of years as if that makes it any more. Like, nothing is nothing, no matter how long you wait. Nonetheless, there, there is these discrepancies. But I want you to know that it is possible that a snake with legs <laughs> is talking. It's possible. It's also possible that there was some kind of animal that was possessed and animated by a supernatural being. It's possible. 
And for those of you that maybe are kind of orthodox, conservative Christians, and I don't mean that in a political sense. I just mean that word's so charged these days. This might be a little like, oh, what are you saying, Pastor Phil? But, but it is possible for the story to symbolize Satan as a snake without denying its historicity and without calling it mythology. And we could talk about more about how, well, how is that possible? I could tell you we could have coffee if you'd like, but, but, but here's what we do know. The ancient text doesn't care to answer our modern question. It's not a science book. All that we are told, all that we are told was that there was a snake in paradise and that the snake is, is called a crafty creature. And, and that's what I want to deal with. I mean, we can pontificate and talk about what's not in there, but, but here's what the text says. This snake was a was crafty, was a crafty creature. Let's deal with those words independently. Crafty. The, the word implies wisdom. The, the word implies prudence, clever, shrewd, sharp. The text explains that the snake was the most intelligent beast in the field. Did you see that? It wasn't just your random garden variety, if I could use the word. But, but what made the snake nefarious was not his craftiness, but, but, but the motivation of his craftiness, right? The intent of his craftiness. Uh, uh, what was his motivation? What was, how was he using his craftiness? Well, he was using his skill to erode man's trust in God. He's not just a crafty but he's a creature. Though the snake was devious and crafty, the text reveals that he was made. You see, like Adam and Eve, the serpent was a creature, which implies that he was dependent upon God. Now that'll maybe open up more questions that it'll answer in this place. But here's what we know, that this crafty creature was made. And because he was made, he is subjected to the sovereignty of God. And we will find out. I want you to know that the original readers just see this as a chaos creature. They don't really call him Satan. He's not identified as Satan here. We'll find out later Peter will mention him. And even in Revelation 12, we'll refer to him as the snake. But nonetheless, this is key. God or Satan is not God's antithesis. The Bible does not make Satan out to be God's equal yet opposing enemy. Are you with me? Like he's not the dark side of the force. Right, right, right. Satan is not the yin to God's yang. Though Satan rebelled, he's under God's control. He's subjected to God's sovereignty. And I want to phrase, though Satan rebelled, I want to say God is in control. I'm going to make sure my, my phraseology gets right. Even. I don't even know phraseology is a word. God bless you. 
Though Satan is crafty, Genesis 3 confirms that he was created and thus depended upon God. And since he cannot harm God, he made it his mission to mar and maim God's image. Now I want to take a discipleship detour for a moment because this truth should provide believers. Like if you're in this room and you follow Jesus, and if you're in this room and you don't, this is just a great time just to see how we think. But if you're in this room and you're a believer, this is a, I just want to say this truth should provide believers with both caution and courage. Caution in that we must not be ignorant to the reality of Satan and his schemes. And we've been having staff chapels the last couple of months. And at one of our chapels, it was actually really impactful to remember that we're at war. I think sometimes, especially like me, if you're pragmatic or you think logically, right, you can look at everything that's going on in your life and kind of explain it. But I think sometimes it harms us to be ignorant to the reality that there is a diabolical force, that there's a diabolical person, an adversary that is out to kill, steal, and destroy. And we can over-explain things and forget the reality that there is a warfare going on. You're at war. There's a struggle. There's a tension. There's a frustration. Because the reality is we live in a world stained by sin, marred by Satan, whose mission is to maim the image bearers, to distort the image, so that God would not get the glory that belongs to him. He's been called the serpent of old, a devouring lion, and believe it or not, even a fiery dragon. This is not Lord of the Rings. But are you ready for this? He's also been called a smooth-talking angel of light. We'll let that preach to anybody in this room. Right? He can look good. He can feel good. He can smell good. He can sound good. But in the end... He's hell-bent on your destruction. Let that sit. Be lying to you to say that sin in its early stages doesn't produce some kind of attraction, some kind of addiction. And you know something to also recognize in this kind of caution? He's been doing his job for a long time. He's a supernatural being, more powerful than you, than you and I. And he's been at this since the beginning. Which means he knows your weakness even better than you know it yourself. And that he has formed a weapon against you. And he's been running this playbook over and over and over again. Maybe not very creative, but potent. Caution, supernatural being hell-bent on warring against the image of God. But also courage, amen? <sighs> courage, courage, right? Seatbelts off, 
<laughs> Bumpiness has stopped. We're, turbulence is now, it's smooth courage. Courage in that we must remember that Satan is subjected to God. We must remember that in Christ, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have put your faith, if you repented and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are in Christ. And in Christ, you are secure. In Christ, you are protected. In Christ, he's all bark and no bite. He's a snake that has been defamed, an enemy that has been disarmed, according to Ephesians. And though he may attack, the battle has already been won. And though he may condemn, those who are in Christ have already been forgiven. And though he may try to kill, steal, and destroy, Christ has already overcome the grave. He's already overcome the grave. And though he may take your life, he can't take that if you are in Christ. Christ didn't resurrect spiritually. He resurrected bodily. And though this world may be covered in darkness, Christ has already began to inaugurate a new creation. I think there's some of you in here today that need to be more cautious. I think you're being a little flippant with the reality of this supernatural being and his angelic forces, fallen angelic demonic forces that are out to destroy your life. And then I think there are some of you in here that need to be a little bit more courageous. <laughs> because everything's the devil. <laughs> So must need to take a little ownership of the flesh because the reality is, is he's a disarmed being, which means he only has authority that we give to him if we're in Christ. Are you with me? And then once we reach healthy maturity, we should walk in a level of caution and courage. That's the sermon. That's it. When it comes to the serpent, wisdom, 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 wisdom calls, calls for caution and courage as we image our creator in the world. So we're sent out on mission to make disciples, to inspire disciples. I want to move from the serpent to sin. I'm going to ask you a question. Did you know that the first sin has something to say about all sin, right? The first sin is the pattern sin. Uh, the way that they sinned is the way that we sin. So to understand human sin in its totality, uh, we, we must analyze and understand the serpent's assault in the garden, right? It's not just something for us to look and say, well, that happened then, but to look and say, man, principally, there are things that happen to us. And so we can see the first sin in order to understand our own sin. Are you with me? So here's what I want to do. I want to take four truths assaulted by the serpent. The serpent assaults these truths. I just want to, I want to preach to you while you sit in this room. Four truths assaulted by the serpent's lies. Number one, I think the central component, the central piece to remember that the serpent Serpent's assault was on the credibility of God's word. 
the first thing that he says to Eve is, did God actually say? There's nothing new. Like if you've heard this sermon before, this is, this is it. Did, did God actually say like, his words? This is the central focus of Satan's assault. And, and notice, at least in this phrase, this wasn't a direct attack, right? It's, it's kind of subtle, sneaky. He's a snake. <laughs> Satan is the first creeper in human history, <laughs> right? <laughs> some of y'all need some deliverance from creepers. He, he, he's the ultimate predator. In this scene, we literally see the serpent grooming Eve. And he, 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 there's a goal there to plant a seed of doubts. He's creating just enough space in Eve's mind to consider the possibility that God's word might be up for debate. And Adam's there the whole time. Quiet. When the world. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 2, the, the scripture that 16 and 17, we started off today, Eve wasn't even created yet when God gave him the prohibition. Where are you, Adam? But, and especially, well, it's but, we, we, we can't forget what we already know to be true about God and his word. Did you know that if we only had Genesis one through three, we would already know the truth about God's word. If we only had those three chapters, we would already know the truth of God's word. What do you mean by that? You see, in the creation story, it's God's word that brings life and light. It's in the creation story that God's word brings order to chaos. It's in chapter one and two where, where his spoken word takes what is tohu wabohu. Pastor Tim Mackey, the Bible project, he, 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 he kind of translates that. It's, it's in Genesis one, two, that God can take what is wild and waste and make it beautiful and beneficial. Do you remember? In chapter two, it was his word that created a garden and decorated that garden with beauty and splendor and food to eat. How quickly we forget. How easily we can be deceived. All that Adam and Eve had to enjoy, every need that was fully met was the result of God's word. Remember, God spoke it and it was, and it was good. God spoke it and it was, and it was very good. So what you could say is that an assault on God's word is fundamentally an assault on God's goodness. It's not just an assault on the word as if the word is something. It's assault on the one who's speaking the word. 
And as we kind of expand this question, did God really say, Satan continues to add, the serpent moves kind of from subtlety to now exaggeration. What do I mean by that? He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right, right? He, he exaggerates what God said. And I love it because Eve corrects him. It's like, yo, 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 no, 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 that's not what he said. He said, we just can't eat that tree. And then she added, we can't even touch it. Which I know some preachers kind of get at her. Well, why she got to add to God's word? I'm like, I ain't touching it either. I ain't eating it. I ain't looking at it. I ain't touching it. God never said that. In fact, if we go back to Genesis 2, 16 and 17, where we started, God said, you can have any tree. (laughs) Think about that. God said, you can have any tree, just not that one. And yet we see the craftiness of the serpent on display. We see the lie of sin. The serpent exaggerates the prohibition in order to emphasize the, the prohibition. He exaggerates, you can't eat nothing in order to just draw attention to the fact that there is a prohibition. The serpent shifts the focus off of all that God had freely provided onto the one thing that God said, no. The truth was that God was good and generous, but the lie of the serpent and the lie of sin is that God is stingy and repressive. Sound familiar? We live in a secularized culture that demands that we break free from the constraints of the God of the Bible, don't we? God is repressive. He holds you back. And this attitude has created a climate of atheistic existentialism that continues to perpetuate the serpent's lie today. A lie that says the God of the Bible is restrictive and repressive. A lie that has reduced God to a list of rules that has called God a a cosmic killjoy that ruins all the fun. A lie that tells us to follow our hearts. And to do whatever makes you feel good. This lie is as old as the garden scene. But the truth is, what this world calls freedom is actually slavery. All of us know the result of sin. And though there's a temptation and a glamorous look to it all, It's poison once it sinks its fangs inside of you, destroys you. The truth is, is that what the world calls freedom is slavery. And what the world calls freedom is the root of all selfishness, suffering, and pain. You want to know what the natural consequences of doubting God's goodness and disobeying his word is? It's evil and sin. Right? This is the Christian worldview on where evil suffering comes from. 
It's the result of creature becoming creator and deciding for themselves. I'm getting ahead of myself. But here's what I want to say this. There's no, there's one more critical component I think that Satan has to remove in order for the temptation, in order for us to be all in. There's one more thing that Satan has to erode. One more thing that has to be removed out of the way before we go all in. The serpent assaults the reality of God's judgment. When he says, you won't die. You remember God said, if you do this, you'll die. And Satan says, you won't die. You know, that's the first contradiction in scripture. Did you know that this is the first time, this is the, did you know that the first doctrine denied in the Bible is the doctrine of judgment? This isn't very far-fetched, right? We live in a culture that wants to deny the reality of God's judgment. Because if you remove his judgment, if you remove consequence, accountability, you could do whatever you want. I was sitting with, this was several months ago, and this time it was someone who was a friend of mine. Her and I, we went to high school together, and she's actually, she's a lawyer, which made this conversation really tough. We had a great day, uh, grabbed some lunch. And then all of a sudden, you know, she kind of switched up on me. And uh, she goes, Pastor Phil. I'm like, oh, shoot. Like, we, we grew up as homies. You know what I mean? Like, where's this coming from? And she, she's, she's agnostic. And she goes, Pastor Phil, am I going to hell? <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but I was just... I mean, there's just inside, right? Again, like in the last conversation, outside you're trying to, you know, present all like calm. Inside you're like, ah, what are we doing here? You, you can see how the erosion of the reality of judgment is a key component in our culture. So if there's any way to try and discredit the reality of judgment in hell to try and put me on a defensive in order for someone to do what they want to do, live how they want to live. And as I was panicking internally, I began to just ask the Holy Spirit for clarity. I got real Pentecostal at that point. <laughs> I'm, I'm praying in tongues again. I'm doing all these things. are just coming back. I know we got all kinds of mixes in here. That was for the Baptist in the room. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden, I just felt like, you know, I felt like when God told the apostles, hey, you know, don't worry what you're going to say, <laughs> you know? And I just felt in that moment, just like this peace going, like, she's a lawyer. If there's anyone that understands justice and judgment, it's her. And we had spent that entire day talking about how she broke open a case of elderly who had been abused. She shared horrible ways that they were mistreated and that she felt like it was her life call now to protect those that had been harmed. And she, she expressed joy over the fact that some of those corporate institutions 
we're being judged. And I revisited that. And I said, let me tell you something. If you can understand justice and judgment on the earth, you can understand the justice and judgment of God. And she stepped back. Well, she leaned back, we were sitting, and she said, you know what? That's a good point. I'm gonna have to get back to you. It's like, nah, you put me to the fire. Answer right now. I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Did it. And, and it's led to, she's even been here one time. It's just led to an ongoing dialogue. But do you see how the elimination of judgment is really a crucial key to a secularized world? A, a famous televangelist. <laughs> now, depending on how old you are, when I say that word, some of you are like, oh, yes. Some of you are like, ugh, here we go. Right? But a famous tele, televangelist was caught. <laughs> That's not, you know, in a motel with a male prostitute, and he was arrested for possession of cocaine. The scandal rocked the Christian world as so many had come to Christ under his ministry and had looked to him for spiritual direction. And in an interview in a jail cell, after he had admitted to several years of multiple affairs and drug abuse while in ministry, the interview asked this ex-evangelist, at what point did you stop loving God? And he replied, I never stopped loving him. I stopped fearing him. I don't know how the theology works out there. I feel like his love went cold. But, but, there, but there is something to what he's saying. Right, right, right. You, you can hear this, the truth within the statement that partners with the serpent's lie. When, when divine accountability is denied, when the fear of consequences are removed, when we cheapen God's grace and abuse his love, we pave the path to fall into sin. We open the door to engage in and indulge in the pleasures of the flesh. And now we get to the heart of the temptation or what I think is the, really the potency. Now, like all barriers have been removed. We're officially questioning God. <laughs> we're removing the consequences. We're stopping. We're no longer fearing God. You with me? Yeah. And now the first couple is primed for the temptation. Here it is. If you remember, he says this. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. There it is right there. That's what we want. That's what we want. And listen to how the text describes being like God. He says, you will be like God knowing good and evil. 
what do, we, what, did, what do we mean by that? What's the text mean by that? What, what does it mean to know? Now, the Hebrew can use know in different ways. But here in this particular part of Genesis 3, to know means to determine for yourself. It's, it's moral autonomy. Auto means self. Nomos means law. It means to be a law unto yourself. God, God is saying, trust me, that tree's going to kill you. That's what God said. God's saying, trust me, that tree is going to kill you. And they're responding, I got this, God. In fact, from what the serpent has been telling me, you're actually holding back. Yes, I know you fashioned and formed me, but I can take it from here. I got it. I can do what you do, God. I can determine what is right and wrong. I can decide to do what I want, where I want, how I want, with whomever I want, whenever I want. And your word has no right to tell me otherwise. Essentially saying, I don't need you or your voice in my life anymore. You see what's happening? Creature is trying to be a creator. What, what we're really witnessing is rebellion. And what the New Testament will define as idolatry. And what we'll see in the Old Testament play out in, you know, Molech and all of these idols and gods that we think, oh, we're not like that no more. And then we, you know, we get stuck on our cell phone, you know, our, our devices and, you know, we, we love money and we, here in the Bay Area, we look at our homes and our, that's all these things are, we give our, we slave and give our lives to the promise of these. It's the same thing, but this is idolatry. This is the essence, rebellion and idolatry. Don Carson called it the de-godding of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it was the becoming, becoming Lord of God. And you want to know the irony of it all as we get ready to conclude? You want to know the irony of it all? They were already like God. Isn't that crazy? Like if you go back to Genesis 1, 20, didn't God say, let, let us make man? in our image and in our likeness. They were already made to be like God. They were made to reflect his image on the earth. They were made to take the boundaries of beautiful and beneficial Eden and expand it. They were meant to co-labor and partner with God to turn what was wild and waste to something that was beautiful and beneficial. They were given rhythms of rest and rhythms of work. They were delighting in God imaging God. The real problem wasn't that they would look like God, but they wanted to be God. You see that? And yet it was impossible for a creature to be creator. It's impossible for the finite to be infinite. It's impossible for the one who is not knowing to try to be all knowing.
They fell for the serpent's lies and it divorced them from their creator as they partook of the forbidden fruit. Some of you be like, man, what was, there's something magical about that tree. You know, what was the properties of that fruit? The reality was it was just a tree with fruit. The power behind it was God said, don't do that one. Don't, don't disobey, don't act beyond your creatureness. Stay dependent upon me. And if you do that, everything will be very good. So when the scripture says that their eyes were opened, the reality was for the very first time, disobedience entered into the earth. Creature violated the prohibition of creator. Are you with me? And, and, here, and here's how we're going we're gonna to bring this home. You guys are doing great. Do you remember the description of paradise prior to the fall? We're told at the very end of Genesis 2, after that beautiful song, that poem, the vow that Adam made before Eve, at the very end, right before the chaos creature comes in, we're told that they were naked and what? Not ashamed. Now, after they have partook of the fruit, after they have disobeyed God, the scripture says that they run from him, that they hide from him, that they sew up fig leaves. And when God says, where are you? They begin to have this conversation. We realize that pre-fall, they were naked and not ashamed. And post-fall, they realized they were naked, but now they were scared and shamed. They were ashamed. See that? And one pastor preacher puts it like this. Pre-fall was the pinnacle. The pinnacle. It was the pinnacle of innocence and intimacy. And he goes on to say post-fall was the pit of guilt and separation. The peak, the pinnacle of innocence and intimacy with God, with one another, with creation. And all of a sudden, the pit, the pit, separation and shame. And if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, and for those of you, maybe this is your first time here, not a slight to you, but if you've been, you see, man, this is a tragic moment. I've had people come to me after service, and man, the last couple of weeks, it's been so beautiful to hear creation and all of that beauty flipped upside down. As we get ready to respond, I want to say this. If you were to look at the scriptures, if you were to put the entire Bible into four chapters, you could say this. Chapter one, creation, answers the question, where did we come from? Chapter two, fall, it answers the question, how did everything go wrong? But then chapter three is redemption. What did God do to make right what we made wrong. What did he do? 
Well, the scripture says that he put on flesh. That he stepped down and he walked among us. And that he was tempted by Satan too. But instead of falling like Adam, he had victory over Satan and sin. And he walked the pure life, the sinless life that you and I could never walk. And he died an innocent death, though you and I are not innocent and deserving of death. The innocent lamb of God was slaughtered for us. And upon himself he took and bore our shame and he took our sin and put it upon himself and on the cross the 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 beauty and also the gore of the cross is the reality that he was punished judged on our behalf so that anybody so that whoever in this room right now would believe that that story is true Though atheism tries to deny it and explain it in other ways, but whoever would believe that that is true, whoever would put their faith in Christ and trust in what he's done, that even though you are a sinner and even though your clothes are dirty, even though it's designer, you would be covered in the robes of righteousness. Jesus Christ's perfection. So that when the Father looks down, He'd no longer see your sin, but he would see his son. And that separation that was caused in Genesis 3 has now come together for eternity. It's a story. That's the gospel. Let us take a moment to reflect in a moment, the team is just going to express in song the beauty of Christ. You can stand up. You can sit down. You are free to worship. You are free to contemplate. But let's just take one moment before we finish and ask the Holy Spirit to highlight, reveal, correct, but even bring us back to the cross. Amen. Amen.